0: I'm Kristen Marchand, and you're listening to the Opiongo Line and a show simply called The Two Julies, Remembering Chippewa Lodge. Julie Fisher-Ryle and Julie Maloney are chatting with our local host, Sean Conway. Time now to get back to that interesting conversation.
1: Julie Fisher-Ryle, um, take me back, take us back uh, to um, the menu. Three meals. It's a lot of work for a relatively small staff. Uh, it's a lot of work for your father trying to provision this place for four and a half months of really um, intensive activity from a provisioning point of view. So just take us through uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and how did your father keep the uh, the um, supply line uh, in good repair as One group came and another group left. We had
2: pretty much weekly deliveries of fresh vegetables and fruit from a company whose name I cannot remember. We bought uh, had a weekly delivery of eggs from someone who had an egg farm around about Douglas somewhere. He did most of the resorts. Um, I think his name was Kilby. He had an egg farm. We had a weekly delivery of or sometimes bi-weekly delivery of milk, which we got through the Berries Bay Dairy, milk, cream, that kind of thing. And about once every two weeks, Canada Packers truck would arrive with the meat for two weeks at a time. We maintained three very large freezers at the lodge and one at our winter home, which was always stuffed with food from the lodge. So with regards to the menu, my dad did all of the cooking, except for the baking. My mother did all of the baking because she kept claiming he burnt everything.
1: Excuse me, just before we get off that point, your father cooked essentially for 90 to 100 people every day? Yes, and when he bought
2: the lodge, he could not boil water.
1: So who taught him how to cook?
2: What happened was, when he first bought the lodge, he hired a cook who cooked for the University of Toronto uh, during the term time, and then in June, he would come up and cook for my father the month of June, July, and August. And one year, apparently this, this chef had a bit of a, drinking problem and one year he didn't get off the train so my dad looked at my grandfather and said what am I going to do and my grandfather was very British he says well you know I think you should buy a cookbook so dad went into Charlie Murray's general store and Charlie had a cookbook called 100 to dinner and my dad bought the cookbook and started cooking and that was how he started his career as a cook
1: this would be Charlie and Dan Murray's general, general store, store in Barry's, in Barry's Bay. Bay. yeah
2: 100 to dinner. I have it somewhere in my book collection to this day. You know, take a peck of potatoes. That, that was the way the recipes were written. Anyway, as far as the general menu went, we uh, served full breakfast. Uh, we served so much oatmeal to the American guests that I can't begin to tell you. They were pots like this that we'd go through two or three of those in a morning and then the usual eggs and bacon, pancakes a couple of times a week. Um, always had cold cereal, always had fruit juices. And then lunch, for many years, was a buffet. It started out, there was a buffet Wednesday night and Sunday night, and then it segued into being a buffet every day of the week. And so we would put different hot dishes on and cold dishes on, and, and my mother would bake brownies and cookies and whatnot for these herds of people. And then for dinner, there was always a set menu, like you'd have ham one night, you'd have lamb chops another night, roast beef another night, steak another night, that kind of thing. And uh, if you didn't care for whatever it was, then my dad would do you up a plate of say, cold ham that was left over or
1: something like that.
2: So that was pretty much, that was basically the... uh...
1: You talk about your father and his British origins, yet here he is learning how to cook for largely an American audience. Did he have to uh, pay particular attention to differences uh, in dietary expectations? All
2: he had to pay attention to was to get that food in front of him as quickly as possible. They were very impatient. They wanted to be served immediately and quickly. So you did not let them sit. Like they, they put their soup spoon down. You grabbed that bowl and shoved a plate of food in front of them. That's the way they wanted to be. They wanted to be in and out the door in less than half an hour, which is the Canadian guests we had were so different. In what way? They would sit and enjoy their meal. You know what I mean? They'd, they'd sit and have, they'd have their coffee after dinner. And we'd get to the point where we're going, could we get them out of here so we can clean up and go for a swim? You know? But that was the difference In the in the demographic, I don't know whether it was because they just wanted to get away from their kids and send them to the beach or what, but it had to be done. Boom, boom, boom.
1: I want to come back to this difference between American and Canadian guests. But Julie Maloney, again, you're a consumer, you're a client at this uh, elegant resort. Again, thinking about the your experience over 20 plus years, what do you remember? about uh, going to breakfast, lunch, or dinner at Chippewa Lodge. Everything from the menu to the dress code to sticking around to having a cup of coffee and not running off with these Americans that want to get it over with ASAP.
3: The bell for breakfast would ring at 8. And when we were...
1: Excuse me? A bell for breakfast? A bell. Now tell me a little bit about this bell. Um,
3: The Fishers had the most wonderful great... It was like a great big schoolhouse bell out on a, a pole and... It would ring exactly at 8 a.m., and then that was to call everyone in to breakfast. It would ring right at noon for lunch and 6 p.m. for dinner. So we'd wait for the bell and run down to the lodge. I loved the mornings when we had bacon and eggs. Mr. Fisher made the best scrambled eggs. I've never been able to duplicate them. They were so good. Didn't like the oatmeal particularly. Didn't matter how much brown sugar you put on it for me, but my brothers loved it. They inhaled it too. And uh, I was never as happy on pancake days because I just didn't love pancakes that much, but always happy with the, uh, the bacon and eggs. <laughs> Every once in a while for lunch, Mr. Fisher would serve mashed potatoes made from a dry mix and of all the meals he ever cooked, that was the only thing I didn't like. It didn't matter how much butter and salt and pepper you put on them. They were, they were just awful. However, to make up for it, he made homemade chocolate sauce that was so delicious. I have the recipe, and I still make it all these years later. It's a family favorite. So thank you, Mr. Fisher. So that's what I remember most about the meals. Oh, and the tomato juice. Yes, we had friends come up from Ottawa. They had never seen tomato juice served in small juice glasses before. They thought this was the ultimate of luxury.
1: So, Julie Fisher-Ryle, your late father, would be delighted to hear such reviews, which he undoubtedly heard uh, through most of his career as the chief chef at the lodge, uh, given the fact that he had no special training other than Charlie Murray's cookbook.
2: He never, ever referred to himself as a chef. He was a cook. A cook. He, He said because he never put wine in his dishes. I don't know why. But Julie's chocolate sauce, the story behind that is quite something. He would make this stuff, and you'd go to get it out of the jar in which it was kept in the fridge, and it was solid. So he would take an ice cream scoop and scoop it into a big dish, and then he would add cream to water it down. I'm talking whipping cream. Was this good? Oh, man. And he would serve it over a scoop of vanilla ice cream, and whenever it was time to serve the Maloney table, he'd always make sure there were two huge scoops of chocolate sauce on the tiny little scoop of ice cream, because he knew they all loved that chocolate sauce. But can you imagine the, the cholesterol in that? Yikes. Yikes.
1: <laughs> and serving it up to a distinguished me- member of the medical profession like Julie Maloney's father. I'm not sure Pat
2: actually ate it, but it, all his kids did. It was so funny. But, I, uh, ha- I have
1: to ask you, Julie Fisher-Ryle, the school bell uh, or whatever it was that Julie Maloney has so affectionately described, did you have a duty to go out to... Uh,
2: well, one of us would... would so what time is it? Somebody would go out and ring the bell. And So somebody would go out and... It started out, it had a pole thing, and that eventually went... West. I don't know where it happened to it. It fell off. So then you take the clapper and whack it against the side of the bell.
1: Do you think your experience at an early age as a child ringing the the breakfast bell kind of uh, uh, opened the door to your very distinguished uh, (laughs) educational career later in life?
2: No, I don't think so. If I'd had to put up with that in between classes, I probably would have shot myself. No, it it was. uh, You asked earlier about the liquor license. We never had one. My father said it was far too much trouble. And you had to do far too much work in order to get a liquor license from the
1: LLBO at the time. What would he have meant by that? Just too uh, much. Well, okay.
2: First of all, we had washrooms in the main building, male, men's and women's washrooms. We would have had to quadruple them. One of each. What wasn't enough? We had to have four for the number of people that we we serviced. Um, all of the wall that separated the kitchen from the dining would have to have been reinforced with aluminum or tin or something. And the doors to the lounge between the kitchen and the lounge and dining room would have had to have been reinforced and covered in metal all of that was prohibitively expensive he would rather have put it into modernizing the cottages to the point where they could be modernized in the 1960s um, you know some of them actually got hot running water and showers and that kind of thing so he did not invest his money in in liquor uh, in a liquor license he just said it wasn't worth it. And most resorts around here at the time didn't have one.
1: As you tell that story, we're reminded in 2021 uh, of the extent to which Puritan, Ontario went to protect people, foreign and domestic, <laughs> from the evils of alcohol and all its godless works.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah, because we used to have to go to the liquor store and you had a book like a passbook in the bank. I don't know if you remember that. Oh,
1: remember it well.
2: And you had to pass it through and I won a bottle of whiskey, passed it through and they'd write it down and hand you your bottle in a brown paper bag and slink out.
1: So people listening to this will be thinking, surely the host is going to ask the obvious question. You've got a large number of um, middle class folks up at a beautiful lodge in beautiful summer weather. And notwithstanding the liquor rules and all the rest of it and certain maybe most parental prohibitions that thou shalt not look at drink, thou shalt not think about drink, and thou shalt most of all not, you know, wet your whistle with (laughs) gin or beer or any other intoxicant. But real people know that people on holiday in very favorable circumstances might find a way quietly imbibe. Surely there must have been some experience, some memory, Julie Fisher-Ryle and Julie Maloney of people that found their way to a bar of their own making.
2: Oh absolutely and I mentioned earlier the family that brought up their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and whatnot and uh, Mrs. T was an avid teetotaler. She was a member of the Women's Temperance Union and This was not happening, so her family always had to skulk behind their cottage porches and drink their their pre-dinner cocktail. But her husband liked a beer, and a week before they arrived, he would call my father and say, Right, Len, you know what I want? IPA. In the fridge. So my dad would go into Barry's Bay to the beer store, and he'd buy 24 bottles of IPA, I I think it was Carling or something, and put it in the big walk-in fridge. And at the end of the day, before dinner, Mr. T would lumber down to the lodge, Walk into the fridge with his bottle opener, pop the cap of the beer, swallow the beer, put the bottle back, and leave.
1: He would stand in inside the inside fridge. the fridge inside the, the fridge. walk-in fridge and have his, his brew. beer. His his beer, yes.
2: It was a very uh, it was it was always a source of great understanding. What time is it? Oh, he'll be here any minute. <laughs> so we all got out of the fridge while he was in there having his. And it, it took him about thirty seconds to down the beer. But anyway, he couldn't be away too long because she'd suspect. You
1: see. What but about could I bring my own beer or could I bring my yeah. own wine say and bring it into the dining room?
2: Um Julie can speak to that. They didn't do it much during my tenure because it wasn't done. People didn't drink wine with yeah. with meals, but Julie can maybe speak to
3: that. When I went back to the lodge as a parent and brought my children uh, at that point the ownership had changed and they still didn't have a liquor license but you were allowed to bring a bottle of wine with you to dinner if you wished. In my parents' day what they would do is they would have a cocktail before dinner just outside their cabins and that was allowed. You could bring whatever you wanted Mm-hmm. And I remember Mrs. Fisher, all of Julie's mom, would come down many an afternoon and she and my mom would sit out there just before dinner and laugh and hoot and holler and gossip about all sorts of things. And uh, I think both of them really looked forward to that particular period of the day when they could connect.
1: And Julie Maloney, in your late teens, uh, you at this point are getting to know a number of returning teenagers attached to other families, certainly. Um, what, if any, memories do you have of teenagers doing at 16 and 17 and 18, what they're prone to do in just about every social setting of which I've had experience? Uh, any remembrance of uh, people slipping a beer here and a jug of wine there?
3: I really don't. The people of my generation weren't drinkers at all and I wasn't either so we were not interested in that sort of thing at all and by the time I was 16, 17 I had summer jobs so I would often only get up to the lodge on the weekends. Right. So it was kind of a Saturday, Sunday and then head back home. I have
1: to tell you growing up in Barry's Bay that you've one described one the a bubble yeah. because the teenagers of my acquaintance yeah. uh, would be looking for uh, Mine
2: too, but I think because my father was always, there there was always a fatality, alcohol-related, during every year, if you recall, in this area. And my father was terribly afraid of that, so he used to say to me, when I got to the age where I might be considering having a few, he would say, here's the bar, you're not legal, but I'd rather you did it at home. And in consequence, I didn't. It was there, it was on offer, and I didn't care, and it tasted like garbage anyway. And
1: the mischief was taken out of it.
2: Exactly. But I do have one other liquor story um, that I always found very amusing. I am, as an adult, a martini drinker, a proper one with gin and vermouth, and I've always liked them. So we had a, a, a couple from Columbus, he was an attorney, and she had blue hair. Their names were Gordon and Dorcas. A, I'll just say they have no family so I can what say What was them. the
1: last name?
2: Their last no, 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 the, they, the, the Gordon
1: and... Dorcas. 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 That was the woman's name.
2: Yes. And when I got to be about 18 or 19, every night before dinner, they would invite me to their cottage to have a drink with them because they felt that I should learn to drink responsibly. So the first night I'm down there, by this time I was in university, so... Uh, what would you like to drink and I said well if you have it I would really like a gin martini with some ice no I said I'd really like a gin martini so Gordon goes to his little table and he mixes me up a, a martini with a pours it into a, a, a water glass because that's all he had puts it all of it and hands it to me and she says I'm going and she talked like this I'm going to tell you a story and I said okay So she said, well, you remember two years ago when Gordon and I went to Montreal for that convention and he was a keynote speaker? Yes, Mrs. Williams, I remember. Okay, she said, well, they did things for the wives while the men were all meeting and they took us all around old Montreal and we came back to the hotel and I was so tired and I said, Gordon, and he said, yes, dorky. He called her dorky. Yes, Dorky, I'm really tired. Let's go out for some dinner and a couple of drinks. So off they went. And they had a couple of martinis before dinner. And then they had dinner with a bottle of wine. And then they had a couple of liqueurs or something after dinner. And then she said, Gordon, yes, Dorky, I'm too tired to walk back to the hotel. Let's take a cab. So they did. $32 later, they got, this is in the 60s, got back to the hotel. The next morning they get up, she opens the blinds and she says Gordon Yes, Dorky. Where did we eat last night? He said, Well, I don't know what the name was in French, but I think it was called the Blue Goose. Gordon it's right across the street. Moral of the story, dear, always put ice in your martinis. And I have ever since. So that's my
1: that my story. Is a, that is a side splittingly funny story for me at least. <laughs>
2: They were, Julie will remember them. They were quite the pair. He used to walk up to the, where Chippewa Road branched off from that county road. Right. Every morning with every kid in the place with him. They'd all follow him. He used to go up there and he'd get to the sign and yell rawhide and turn around and walk back. And every morning these little kids would, Mr. Williams, are you going to walk up to rawhide? And every morning he'd march up there. Yell rawhide and march back to the lodge.
1: Did you say he was an attorney?
2: Yeah, he was an attorney in Columbus. It sounded like
1: he wanted to be Ronald Reagan on his way to Hollywood.
2: Oh, he was character. He really. They were. They were. <laughs> Julie and I used to have a lot of giggles over those. Well, not him so much, but her with her blue hair, unbelievable.
1: So, Julie, you, Julie Maloney, you talked to me once upon a time about watching the stars uh, on the uh, Chippewa Shore
3: Beach. What was that like? The area just outside the lodge, actually, was where we would put blankets down. It wasn't so much on the beach, because sometimes the beach was absolutely full of mosquitoes. So We would lie out on the grass. The Milky Way was so visible, there was no light pollution. And on a clear night, it was heavenly, really. And uh, when I went back with my children, that's something we really looked forward to. I'd let them stay up late. As Soon as the mosquitoes disappeared around 10 or so, we'd lie out there for a while, just watch the stars, try and identify the constellations. You cannot do that where I live in the city. And so it was just a real gift.
1: And, you know, speaking about uh, summer um, under the stars in places like Combermare, uh, someone who owned a cottage not far from Combermere and had lots of guests over the years on these beautiful summer nights. It was always a challenge to keep people out of the water at night just because they'd be down on the dock looking at the stars. It'd be beautiful, and they'd decide they wanted to go for a swim. How with the 100 people at the lodge did you... Who supervised the, the swimming area? Was there anybody there to keep an no. eye on people? Did you ever have any uh, incidents with people in the water who couldn't swim or didn't swim or got into trouble? Well, mostly people
2: would, would come down with their kids. Um, sometimes, if they're, uh, we had families that traveled together because they lived in the same neighborhood, wherever they came from, and they'd take turns bringing their kids to the beach. And then as we got a little bit older, I think it was kind of assumed that we would keep an eye on the smaller ones. At least that, that was my, my... I always made sure if there was somebody down there without a parent that I kept kind of a weather eye. But because the lake was so shallow... You know, and you could walk out. I mean, you could practically walk to Barry's Bay. (laughs) The lake was so shallow that it didn't seem to be as big an issue. So we never had any incidences. certainly no lifeguards or
3: anything. Um, The biggest problem was clams. There were a lot of clams, and uh, I know Mr. Fisher and Julie probably got in there every spring and tried to throw as many as they could much further out, and they'd get washed back in. If the clam happened to be open and you stepped on it, you got a pretty nasty Nasty cut, cut. and I can remember my dad as a doctor more than once, he'd always bring his medical bag up to the lodge with him because more than once he would have to, not do stitches or anything, but have to clean out and repair a kind of a nasty cut on somebody's foot
1: growing up. Yeah. You mentioned earlier and I'm thinking about activities because um, you're describing a world where it was pretty self-contained. People uh, particularly the adults, you know, were happy just to be at peace and not be distracted. God forbid, can you imagine these people thinking about a world of cell phones and all of that? Hmm. Um, bridge, cards were there was there was a was there a lot of activity in the larger elsewhere with with people playing cards or bridge?
2: I don't remember much. I mean, they might have played amongst themselves, and I, I never noticed. But um, my dad would do a bingo two or three times during the summer. We'd play with the old navy beans out of a crock. And then, you know, you put in your five cents, and he would call the bingo, and whoever got the bingo would win the pot, whatever it was you know, a buck and a half or something. But we'd we'd set up all the tables in a big square and he'd stand in the middle and, and call the numbers. And the other thing we had, and this usually happened when Julie was a guest because these gentlemen were guests at the same time. They came from Pittsburgh. One owned a music store. And they both played the electric guitar. And Vic was very good, very talented, and Ray corded. He played a hollow body, Rick played a, or Vic played a, a solid body. And they would play, and they play all the old chestnuts. You know, I I'll take you home again, Kathleen, that kind of thing. And invariably, we'd get up and dance, and, and uh, they'd play polkas and, and whatnot, and it was great fun, and we'd play until their fingers, they'd say, okay, enough already, our fingers are hurt. They'd play for hours, but we always looked forward to that, and they'd do it, they were usually there for two weeks, and they would usually do it three or four times while they were there. They would come and do it. And we had a, another guest who was an amateur magician, and he would put on a little show for all the kids.
1: Julie Maloney, that last story that Julie Fisher has just recited about uh, two, two guys from Pittsburgh uh, playing guitar um, would conjure up in the mind of people of our age uh, that which was made famous in the famous movie of, what, 20 years ago, Dirty Dancing, you know, what really went on in the Catskills uh, up uh, the Hudson River Valley outside of New York City. Um, what's your memory of the the musical uh, tr- duo that uh, do you remember that do you remember uh, apart from that other musical distractions diversions opportunities while you were a uh a teenager particularly up at the lodge?
3: The biggest musical thing was these two gentlemen. There was an old piano which we were all taking lessons and we'd try and play and it was sadly out of tune and so on. We were pretty hard on it. But it was a lot of fun listening to these two gentlemen even though the music that they played was the older sorts of things, like Goodnight Irene and so on. Julie and I, at about age 13, became huge Beatle maniacs, so their music was less uh, important to us at that point. We were always hoping they'd break into a hard day's night or something. They never did. No, we put up great big beetle posters in the snack bar, and we had our favorite Beatles. We yeah. collected cards that was, sort of thing. Um, it was less dirty dancing and, and much more innocent, I think. I, yeah. Yeah.
2: Having um, seen the movie many times, we were
3: not, quite not like in that. the same
2: league, and, and certainly there was nobody that looked like Patrick Swayze. No.
3: However, these uh, gentlemen did bring Julie an electric guitars and um, an, an amp. amplifier yeah. one time, and I was so jealous. But Julie was musically talented and sadly I was not and uh, so they gave it to the right person. We did sure. have
2: one party piece though that we used to yes, do. Yes we did. We would sit on the roots of a pine tree outside her parents' cottage overlooking the beach and sing four strong winds in harmony. Yes.
1: But the we being the two Julies. The two yes. of us.
2: Yes. We, and we, at that time Julie played the guitar as well mm-hmm. and we'd sit Badly. there. We both had acoustics and we'd sit there mm-hmm. and that would be and I mean if they asked us for an encore we just had to sing it again. <laughs>
3: Uh, oh we had one other song. Do you, you remember have, when Alan Sherman became famous? Oh yes. Hello Mana. Hello father. We did sing that one.
2: We did we did that one. But as well.
3: he sang the one about in Sherwood Forest, There yeah. Dwelt a Night. Yep.
2: I remember those, yeah. Yes. The, but,
3: but though our our
2: repertoire was very limited, but we could but, if asked, we could get up and perform our, our party piece.
1: That's of, right. Yeah. Now were you ever as teenage girls or young adult women, uh tempted to uh Sneak out on a Saturday night and drive about eight miles to the northeast to the Lakeside Pavilion in Barry's Bay for the Saturday night special?
2: We always wanted to, did we not? But we were never permitted to.
3: It had quite a reputation. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. Just where you'd mix up with that wild Barry's Bay bunch yeah. and uh, boys who may not behave themselves?
3: We did get there once. Julie, yeah. I'll let you tell the story. Well, no, uh, Julie's brother. Justin,
2: was Doc, built, Dr. Justin. Dr. Justin, was built like a fullback. So my parents figured, okay, if Julie's parents are going to let her go and Justin's going, Julie Fisher can go too. And we took my friend Doreen, who was working for my dad at the time. So the three of us off, we get into, I think it was your mother's convertible, and we drive off to, as it was affectionately known, the hog rascal go-go. And we get there, and of course the place is packed, and the same band has played I think they played there until the last one moved away, didn't they, the Poplinskis? They played there all the time. And we went to this dance, and we kind of sat there agog with, what's going on? And they started doing square dancing. And, of course, we looked at each other and went, oh, dear, because we don't square dance. So, anyway, the evening was, I wouldn't say a rousing success, but at least we got to see what we had been missing all those years. And as we left, there was a huge fistfight in the parking lot. And Justin put Doreen behind him, took Julie and I by one arm each, and started through this melee. And they parted like the Red Sea in front of Justin. And as he got through with us girls, they went right back at it behind us. And my friend Doreen still talks about that and laughs over that story. She said it was just like they parted and then right back to punching each other in that.
1: So let me just move slightly from music to art. Uh, I recall 40 years ago having a a wonderful... um, afternoon, actually two afternoons, with the famous Canadian painter A.J. Casson, who when we finished talking about what we were there to talk about, which was the McMichael Gallery, he was very interested to know that I was from Barry's Bay because he had very happy memories of uh, doing quite a lot of painting in the Combermere, Barry's Bay, Wilno, Madawaska area, I think in the 1930s, and he certainly stayed at, I think he called it Thompson's Lodge, which was later to become Chippewa Lodge. Uh, So, Julie Fisher-Ryle, two two questions. One, can we just clarify the Chippewa Lodge, the name, where it came from, and why it was spelled the way it was spelled? And uh, am I right in saying that Thompson Lodge did become Chippewa Lodge?
2: I believe, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere between Thompson Lodge, that owner, sold to somebody else. It had a different name for a very short period. And then it was purchased by a gentleman from Chippewa, Ontario, EWA, named Walter Davidson. And he purchased it, I think, in the mid-40s, give or take. He wanted to name it after his hometown. So he called it Chippewa, but when he registered the deed, something must have gone awry, and it came out Chippewa, AWA. So that's how it got its name. My parents did not rename the lodge, as, as I think some of the advertising is saying now. This is the gentleman who renamed the lodge, and when my dad bought it, it was, in fact, Chippewa Lodge. But yes, um, I was made aware that A.J. Casson stayed at Thompson Lodge, which is the original property uh, way back when. But I, if you're going to talk about the art, I want to turn that over to Julie, because her mother was quite involved with another group of seven member
1: Julie Maloney.
3: My mom was... Uh... An artist who I don't think ever recognized how talented she was. It was a, a pastime. It certainly wasn't a, a vocation. Was
1: she from Ottawa?
3: She was from Halifax. Actually, my mom was a survivor of the Halifax Explosion of 1917. And her, grand, her father, rather, was in the Navy, so they moved about. And uh, he was first on the East Coast, then the West Coast, and then in Ottawa. And that's how she came to meet my dad when they lived in Ottawa. She loved art, and she was very artistic, and so when she came up here and had free time, she was hoping to start some sort of art classes for anybody, anyone who might be interested. She met an artist from Ottawa who used to teach at night school, and his name was Ralph Burton, and he was a lovely gentleman. He came up and gave some classes, and he was very good friends with A.Y. Jackson, And he knew that A.Y. had already been up and painted in the Cormac area. And it turns out a number of our relatives bought his paintings. And my parents would buy his paintings and give them away as gifts and never kept any. So darn, it's too bad about that. But um, she was able to encourage A.Y. to come back to the area. I don't know if she ever got to paint with him, but they did remain lifelong friends.
1: Because I remember as a teenager being around Combermere and actually seeing an older gentleman with a big Panama hat and asking someone, they said, Oh, that's Mr. Jackson, he's that here. Would have been here. painting. Yes. I know <laughs> he painted up at the Schweig Farm, uh, yeah. uh, as I recall, and he certainly was down around Lake Clear. In, in well, Hattie. I think
2: he actually did paint with your mom, because I remember she brought him to the lodge. That was how I met him. She brought him to the lodge, and she introduced him to my wacky great-aunt, who was also... Who came late in life to painting, and she was quite talented. So she was all excited because she got to meet A.Y. Jackson, and and Eleanor had arranged that to bring him in. And he was he was very kind. He was very kind. He you know, I I did some kind of splotch on a piece of paper, and he autographed it for me, and I still have it to this day. I was so proud of the fact that A.Y. gave me this autograph on this absolutely ridiculous painting that I had done with.
1: Well, what I remember was just how vivid a memory that. Uh Mr. Casson had of painting specific places uh, yeah. in Combermare, for example. I'm sure that one of the buildings he painted was uh, owned and lived in by the famous Catherine Farmer, the legendary public school teacher, and basically, you know, um, power that was around Combermare for about 50 years. I see you uh, uh, kind of eyes. agreeing with that, I think, yeah. Julie Fisher? Oh, yes, yeah.
2: Kate Farmer was something else. She taught at the school that elementary school that I went to, but fortunately she retired before I got there. there. Apparently she was a bit of a martinet.
1: She was a, yeah, she was a force to be reckoned with, oh, but yes. uh, but certainly the but Casson's uh, stories were that uh, you know he had wonderful times. It was the depression. Uh, he painted as I say around Combermere, he painted St. Lawrence O'Toole Church and in Barry's Bay under circumstances that were quite amusing, actually. He went up to Mattawaska and he, he knew the area and remembered it quite, quite vividly. So the, the, you don't, Julie Fisher, remember um, painters coming to stay at the lodge or anything of that kind?
2: We'd have one or two, but they certainly weren't in, were any painters that became famous. Uh, they were people who, who enjoyed painting. And we had one gentleman who I think hailed from Fenland Falls, if I'm not mistaken, and he worked in both oils and uh, watercolors. And I purchased one of his oils for my parents, a small one, for a Christmas gift one year. And he did, he went, and I mean, he came from Fenland Falls. It's a small town, but he went all around this area because he said there were so many places to paint. And he owned a little art shop in Fenland Falls, but not to, you know tout his own work but to just sell art supplies and that kind of thing and he put his paintings on sale there but I don't think he ever became famous because I certainly don't remember any I don't remember the name of the man for in fairness but but I do remember Julie's mom was was uh, she was an extremely talented woman didn't she finish her life repairing china she did yeah she got
3: into fine china repair towards the end of her life
1: what did someone of your mother's experience and sensibility think of these many trips she made with her husband and her kids to Chippewa Lodge, did it seem to inspire her artistic impulses?
3: I think that one of the main things was she looked so forward to it because she would have three weeks with no laundry, no meal prep, no whatever, and the kids could run wild like feral children, uh, and it gave her the time to be out. And she used to love some of the tumble down barns between here and Cumbermere. I'm not sure if they're still there, uh, but at that time, there were a few, and she'd love to ask the owner for permission. She'd sit in the field on her chair, and she talked about the quality of the light here and the summertime, and she just loved it, and she was really happiest when she was doing that, I well,
1: think. Well, certainly, A.J. Casson painted his share of tumble-down barns or barns in certain uh, elements of transformation, shall I say, mm-hmm. on the old cumbermere yes. Barrys Bay Road. If your father... Um, the the late, great Pat Maloney were here, what do you think his fondest memories of Chippewa Lodge would have been?
3: I think definitely the fishing. He would just put all his cares and worries aside. He had a very big, successful practice in Ottawa, but it was also very, very stressful. At that time, doctors Still did house calls. He was called at all hours of the day and night, uh, and he just could come up here Nobody could reach him by phone. There was only one telephone and it was in the lodge. There was no such thing as cell phones in those days. So he was unavailable for three weeks and he could fish, he could nap in the afternoons, he could just relax and just be and I think it really helped to recharge him.
2: Well the poor man I don't think got a whole lot of sleep in his regular life but he did like to snooze late in the mornings and the very last Mass that they could get to was 10 a.m. in Cumbermere. Julie will remember this because they were all gussied up and Eleanor marched them all to Mass at uh, Holy Canadian Martyrs. And poor Dr. Pat would be, you know, snoozing away and about 10 minutes to 10 he'd sneak in, because breakfast was long over, he'd sneak in the back door of the kitchen and he always called my dad, Fish off, Fish off. two half raw on a glass, please. And my dad would half boil an and whip up this, this concoction throw a chunk of bread in it, and Pat would <laughs> down the hatch with these two half-raw eggs, and poor Eleanor would be standing there.
3: And my father would say,
2: Doesn't she look lovely when she's slightly irritated? <laughs> <laughs> my dad told that story till he died. He he just thought thought that was so funny. because, it, But Eleanor, being the lady that she was, said nothing. But they usually made it to mass
3: usually. Close to on time. Dad's view was if you got there by the sermon and didn't leave till after communion, you'd pretty much done your duty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and
1: if you were Dr. Pat Maloney, I'm sure yeah. all of those communicants, fellow communicants would be very quick to excuse a man it's so busy and so... Well,
2: uh, he was, uh, his favorite time to come was when they had the, they always had a parish picnic the first, the long weekend in August. The Canadian Martyrs would hold their picnic and invariably Father James Haas, who was the priest at the time, would get up in the pulpit for the homily and he would say, Right, well, as you all know, today is the day of the parish picnic, so I'm just gonna bless everybody. Right after communion you can go home. And that's what he did. And Julie's dad really appreciated that. He thought that was great.
3: Father Hass had the most wonderful Ottawa Valley accent, and so did my father. He never lost it. And my father would say things like, if the Turries and Burries are still here when the Americans come, it'll be a miracle. And we would tease him about that because his younger brother, Arthur, who went on to become a lawyer lost that accent and became very Shakespearean. And we used to chuckle about that too because he sounded so poncy. But uh, Dad loved the way Father Haas spoke. And so they really were kindred spirits. And he loved to stay. He would actually stay until after communion just so he could chat with Father Haas. Yeah.
2: He, was, he was a fixture in that church for years. Yes,
3: I want
1: to come back, Julie Fisher-Ryle, to something we talked about earlier. And that is to understand a little more clearly um, how you managed both you and your parents uh, this bustling place over the course of high summer, with all these Americans and uh, and the Canadians did did um, there must have been points of if not conflict tension between the two groups and my experience with Americans the lovely people that they are you know they are used to kind of getting their way and and uh, whether it's a menu or whether it's The time for meals or all of those kinds of things? You know,
2: in in fairness, I have to say, there are a lot more ugly Americans on television than there are in real life. We had the leave-it-to-beaver crowd, you know, the ones who probably at home wore their ties to the dinner table, and they got to take the ties off and kind of just be... I never saw any kind of conflict between the Canadian and the American factions. I mean... As kids, we might sit around and go, you know, isn't she like dorky? Isn't she an idiot? Uh, but there was never any kind of, of conflict between the two groups of people. In fact, they used to look forward to seeing each
3: other, I think. I think so, too. Yeah, yes. your mom and dad
2: had that one couple from Detroit that they really looked forward to seeing every year, and that was the only place they would see them.
3: But that's what
1: you are describing, both of you, after all of these minutes of this discussion. Is very much a family kind of environment. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and certainly, I don't want to leave an, an, an anti-American impression on my behalf, because in my adult life, I've spent a lot of time going to U.S. Uh, college football towns uh, to, in the fall, taking in that great American experience, which is the Saturday afternoon football game at Michigan State or mm-hmm. Notre Dame or Penn State or whatever. And I must say, it is uh, a wonderful world. It's uh, America at its best, and it has a lot of the characteristics that you're describing. These are people you want to go to dinner with. These are people you want to chat with mm-hmm. after the game and, and, and such like. Um,
3: They were on holiday, and so I think they were probably putting forth their best selves, but I don't ever remember any sort of conflict. I do remember my mother being surprised one time that a certain couple supported Barry Goldwater, and that's the only political thing I ever remember remember. her saying. And uh, there was certainly no tension that I ever thought of. We did chuckle from time to time at some of the quirks. As you
2: would do as a a young person.
3: But there were Canadian guests who were quirky too. Jean Richard, the famous uh, Ottawa MP came with his entire family and they they were a big group and hilarious. And they used to form a line and sing and go into the water before breakfast and they'd form a line like ants heading down to the water singing and we just thought this was hilarious. Hilarious. And of
1: course they were very French Canadian because yes. I knew uh, some of uh, Mr. Richard's children, one of whom went to the Federal Court of Canada as I yes. recall. And uh, but um, so uh, let me just turn the question around. Then, do you remember the Americans just quietly observing certain quirkiness in Canadians, uh, what they drank, what they ate, like the tea or the. You know, because sometimes my American friends are kind of pointing out things that I just take for granted. Everything from the words we use to the preference for, I'm trying to think of a food or a drink that has nothing to do with alcohol, but just... The, I was,
2: the, the thing I remember most you touched on is the language. They used to get the biggest kick because I would say, oh, can I do this again, Dad? Look at the way she says again. Isn't that funny?
3: And about. And about. We don't say about. We do not. But they go about. And yeah. that's what I started to imitate when my mother took me aside and told me to no, no. Uh
2: But that, that's what I remember the most. I remember the, the, that how they were always floored by our the, the expressions that we used. And about was one of them. And again was, again was another one that the, they would pick up. I can't think of any more offhand. But there were several that they would say, is that the way you say it?
1: But Julie Fisher, uh, leaving Julie Maloney aside for the moment, uh, you grew up in the Combermere area, so you would, of course, be prone to the Ottawa Valley accent.
2: Oh, no, that was beaten out of me at a very early age. By? My mother. You will not speak. You know, I was not allowed to go up and say, G'day, how are you? Cold day, 40 below. I can still do it, but I was not allowed to do it. I was to speak properly, and when I went to the nuns, they completed the...
1: And these the were the nuns of which Saint, order? running?
2: Faithful Companions of Jesus running St. Mary's, Mary's High School in
1: yeah. um, in Combermere.
2: Yeah. Uh, to the day my mother died, everybody up here calls it Combermere, correct?
1: Combermere. It's well, called she, it Combermere. Yes. Oh, yes, yes, that yeah. would be...
2: That was not Combermere, but that's what everybody called it, so I will continue to do that.
1: Julie Maloney, I have to tell you one of my fondest memories of your late uncle, Arthur Edward Martin Maloney QC, one of Canada's great lawyers, was Arthur standing in front of a huge crowd of lawyers, I think it was a Canadian Bar Association event uh, where he was speaking, and the first words that came out of his mouth, I happened to be at a table uh, with a group of lawyers from Vancouver when the guest speaker said, important people come from small places, and I, Arthur Maloney, come from Eganville, Ontario. And my Vancouver friends looked at one another and said, where the hell is that? But it always struck me that Arthur was uh, very proud of his roots. And uh, when he got really going in um, high flight, and one of the best speakers I've ever heard in my life, the the Ottawa Valley accent uh, proudly came forward.
3: Um, There was a family in Eganville that ran the general store. They were the only Jewish family in Eganville at the time, the Fagans. And they were a wonderful family and very friendly with the Malonies. And Arthur would be allowed to go in several times a week with a penny to buy some candy. And he would always say to Mrs. Fagan... I'm going to be Prime Minister one day. So when uh, Arthur became the Ombudsman for Ontario, we all wondered, is this just the next step in his, <laughs> his career heights to become Prime Minister? It didn't happen. But
1: I was there the day... In fact, Arthur's installation as the first Ombudsman of Ontario uh, was the day before I was sworn in as a, a member of the legislature. And I have to tell you, in my nearly 30 years at Queen's Park, I, I don't ever remember uh, a ceremony quite as... Wonderful as that. And and part of the wonder was the Ottawa Valley emphasis of the whole show, which was really quite something. Well, listen, the hour is getting late, and I, I want to draw this to uh, a bit of a close, if I can. Um, so before I do, uh, just an open question. Is there anything about your experience, your memory, your reminiscences of... Um, Chippewa Lodge that we haven't put before this court, Julie Maloney.
3: (laughs) I think we've covered pretty much everything, but one thing that Julie and I did experience was one of our little friends from the U.S. uh, stepped on a wasp nest and was absolutely covered and a woman in a couple of cabins down, this would be mid-morning, she saw it, she heard her screaming, she ran out, picked the child up, who was covered, absolutely covered in wasps, and ran down to the water with her, and the two of them were submerged, and she got as many of the wasps off as possible, and uh, my dad was there with his shot of adrenaline, the child was, was fine, luckily she wasn't allergic, but poor thing. She was absolutely covered. And the next thing is Julie's dad created some kind of paste out of, I think it was baking soda. And she had these white spots all over her body where she'd been stung. And uh, she suffered for a couple of days for this. it was
2: you know, scary. Yeah,
3: that was scary. But that I think that was one of the only times I ever remember other than the occasional clam of any child ever being uh, hurt in any way. And so it was an idyllic place. We looked forward to it all year long. We couldn't wait to get there. We hated to come home. It was just really one of the happiest memories, I think, that I have.
1: Would your brothers have had any kind of a different view than the almost um, idyllic, you, you've so eloquently just expressed?
3: I think that in many ways they would probably agree with me, although there's four years between us and uh, there are uh, ten years between my me and my oldest brother. His uh, memories of Chippewa were very, very different. That was much, much the earlier days, and uh, it was a little bit more, um, more primitive, I guess I could say. Uh, he didn't have quite the modern conveniences we did. He still had a lot of fun. But uh, I think his memories would have been quite different. Julie Fisher? Um, I was just going to say there was another medical procedure that
2: Dr. Pat performed when I was 15, and that was he agreed to pierce a lot of our ears. We all wanted pierced ears. Right. So my mother and myself and several of the customers marched up to cabin number 20, and Julie's mom was there, and she had the gin and the tonic so each of these women I was last in line I did not get gin and tonic okay
0: I was last in
2: line they had a drink before he did their ears and they had by the time it got to me I had one ear pierced slightly higher than the other now Eleanor was doing the marking and I don't think I had my head on one side but I still have I always say that was one of his surgical procedures that that he did perform he did and he did he sat there all afternoon
1: so just just for the listening audience I just want to be clear because this is a wonderful (laughs) image. So on a beautiful summer day, while he's on holiday, the legendary Dr. Pat Maloney from Ottawa is sitting on a chair before which is a line of elegant and distinguished women one by one, coming up to get their ears pierced.
3: And in those days, he would have had to use a glass syringe like he would use to administer penicillin, because that's all he had. He didn't have any of the oh, modern no, equipment. Oh, no, he did bullets for me. Oh, did he Yeah, use he did, had this
2: oh, thing. Okay. It was like a bullet oh, gag, that almost was like when a staple. He went through
3: the bullet period. Yeah, and <laughs> it was <laughs> like a
2: little round disc on a stick and shoot it, it into your ear. And it would, was like boom. a staple gun. Yeah, just like a staple. I forgot and about he did that. that. he did... All those ears—he must have done fifteen or twenty women that afternoon, and it took all afternoon because they all had to have a drink first.
1: And presumably, the good doctor had to be. And the good, supported. the good doctor's
2: wife—that's why I keep. She would mark the the spots in our ears for him to hit with the, with the punch gun, and uh, yeah, my, my, my right ear is just a millimeter or so higher than my left.
1: What an image! What so, a fascinating. But image. I mean,
2: it's 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 one of those things that, uh, you tell your children. You you tell them these stories and they look at you like, what? That can't be right. It was right.
1: So my last question to two very articulate, literate women is one that I kind of told you about uh, in a different fashion a while ago. You're given a grant by the Canada Council to write um, a novel about chippewa lodge remembered starting with you julie maloney what's the conceit what's the story that you'd want to tell
3: i think if i were able to write well which i'm not sadly i'm blaming my early education in french convents I would like to do some sort of a family saga, so say starting at the early days when it was Thompson Lodge or even before as it's being built, and that family and those people that came, and then move along to the war period and the post-war period, and then the 50s and 60s, which was our period, and then perhaps what happened later on. I, I, I would love to see that kind of transformation and evolution of family and character and how society changed. I think that's what I would like to write.
1: Julie Fisher-Ryle? Uh,
3: my approach would be slightly different. I've
2: already started at my children's request to write vignettes about things I remember. They're not chronologically organized. But I would tend to do it more of a, what was his name, Stuart McLean and the Vinyl Cafe. That would be the way I would like to write The History of Chippewa Lodge, taking various characters or various incidents and writing little vignettes about what occurred and what happened, and perhaps having a running theme through the whole thing, as Julie said, of maybe a bit of the history of the business behind it. And I would also like to include our friendship, because it spans 70 years, and that's quite saying something, I think, for people to be friends for that long.
1: Well, I'm not a publisher, but listening to the two of you for the last 90 minutes, I have to tell you uh, that I think you're onto something, I think you've got something, and knowing of your very considerable talents, I would strongly encourage you to that task. To the listening audience, I just want to say, with the summer sun washing across the uh, covered deck here at my brother's lovely home on the upper part of uh, Lake Kameniskeg, I want to, on this uh, gorgeous day, thank especially Julie Maloney and Julie Fisher-Ryle, Friends for Life, uh, a friendship born, nurtured, and tied together forever by happy memories of Chippewa Lodge. Thank you
0: very much for doing this. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure. It really has.
0: That was Sean Conway, the host of The Local, speaking with Julie Fisher-Ryle and Julie Maloney as they reminisce about the life and times of Chippewa Lodge from the early 1950s through until the 1970s. We hope you enjoyed their conversation about one of the great resorts of our area that once attracted summer guests from all over North America. Indeed, if you enjoy hearing about how things used to be in our area during the middle of the 20th century, we've got another real treat for you. Our Thanksgiving show will be about Ambrose and Bernadette Plebin's three fine daughters, Joanne, Linda, and Marilyn. And they'll be talking about what it was like to grow up while their parents owned and operated the famous Lakeside Pavilion in Barry's Bay. Much like Chippewa Lodge and even our own beloved old O.A.N.P.S. train station here in Barry's Bay, just the mention of Plebbin's Lakeside Pavilion has the power to call up not only vivid personal memories, but also some of the most beloved stories of our sometimes wild and misspent youth. At least that's what the locals tell me, and I'm sticking with that. So join us, won't you, at 2 p.m. October 11th for Saturday Night at the Lakeside. I'm Kristen Marchand, and for our producer, Barry Conway, we'd like to thank the two Julies for reminding us why we remain so rooted in our remarkable heritage, thanks to places like Chippewa Lodge. Good day, and God bless.